évidemment, quand on travaille plus... Quand vous travaillez plus et que vous augmentez le délai de livraison, vous êtes payé moins par heure, ce qui fait que vous entrez dans un vicieux cercle de « je suis payé moins par heure, donc je dois travailler plus ». Donc, il faut plus travailler. In the end, some delivery drivers do nothing else and they easily end up working 70 hours a week. This is not acceptable in 2023. Et ça, c'est pas acceptable en 2023. Every day, over 28 million people in the EU log in to an online platform to work. Becoming part of the so-called gig economy is as easy as ordering food from your couch. You download an app, get on a bike or a scooter, and wait for the algorithm to put you in touch with a client. Yet, as modern as it sounds, the conditions platform workers experience belong in the past. Lack of social protection or sick leave, low wages, 70-hour weeks, you name it. But how is it possible today in the EU? From the left in the European Parliament, I am Marcella Via and this is Look Left. EU politics under the lens. In this new podcast series, we will fill the gap between EU policy making and what people are calling out loud across the streets of Europe by bringing their voices to the European Parliament. Is the EU listening to people's demands? This is a big question, and that's why, in these and next episodes, I'm joined by my co-host, David Landi. Hi, David, how are you? Hi, Marcella, nice to be here. Looking forward to us. Cool, so let's get started. So, we want to dedicate this first episode of Look Left to platform workers and their fight for social rights. To give you a better understanding of what it means to work in the gig economy, we will listen to the story of Camille, a platform worker from Belgium who spoke with us about his working condition and daily activism. But that's not all, right, David? Yes, Marcella. Later on, I'm going to be talking to uh, Leila Scheibe, an MEP from the left group, about the platform workers' fight and the EU's upcoming directive on the issue. Cool. So we will get to all of this in a moment. But first, let's take a look at what has been going on in the streets of Europe this month. This is the sound that comes from the streets of France. We cannot start this episode without talking about the protests that have been going on for weeks in the country. David, you might know that uh, Macron passed a reform on uh, pension age and uh, now the retirement age rise in France. Yeah. Uh, people took the streets and uh, their claims have been uh, met with uh, violence from uh, the police. Yeah, yeah, that was something actually we tried to guess on the European Parliament agenda recently, but we faced a huge amount of right-wing opposition, the issue of uh, police brutality in France in particular against the protests. So it's basically Macron trying to raise the retirement age when people can start to claim their pension. It's hitting working people like the lowest paid people the hardest. So that's why it's extremely controversial. It's a really bad reform. And you can see it on the streets, the major waves of protests. There's, uh, it has two thirds of French people or even more, I think, are, are against this reform. Uh, it's deeply unpopular. And uh, yeah, the demand is that it's uh, withdrawn and uh, binned. And it should be. True. But for what we are seeing, it seems Macron is not really caring about what people have to say about the pension reform. Democratically, this has been a huge disaster for Macron. He's had to resort to some really 
dirty tactics uh, to get it this far. So this is what has been happening in the streets of France. Also across Europe, we've seen different uh, social uprisings. But do you think this is what uh, is also reflecting in the European Parliament? Yeah, well, the Parliament is here in Brussels and in Strasbourg, and it's in its own little uh, bubble. That's our aim as a group. We try to bring the voice of the streets inside the European Parliament. But it's not always here that we find people are most uh, in tune with what's going on on the street. But then what has been happening in the European Parliament during the last month? From 2035, new cars that are placed on the market, they should be zero emission. We're not saying, okay, you have to sell your car and buy a new car. We're only saying that in 2050, we would like to see that also the transport sector is carbon neutral. That was the European Parliament's uh, rapporteur on the zero emission cars by 2035. This was a big major file that went through uh, Parliament recently. We wanted something more ambitious, of course, more reflective of the need to urgently tackle the climate crisis. But I think in the end, we were largely in favour of it. Since then, though, in Germany in particular and several other member states have uh, bowed to their national car lobbies. And we know the German car lobby has, uh, you know, extremely long tentacles that reach here in Brussels as well. And they scored a major coup in getting the German government, which is a coalition of social democrats, liberals and uh, greens, and in particular the liberal party there, the FDP, to lead the charge against this file and back the German car industry and basically try to find a loophole so that they could keep using certain uh, engines beyond 2035. So that's unfortunate, but the fight goes on. It is another sign that uh, tackling the climate crisis is not being taken seriously enough in Brussels and in a lot of member state capitals. But as we've seen with the pension protests that we were just talking about, hopefully people power eventually wins out. And the massive protests that we have seen over recent years by the climate movement will continue and force politicians to take this problem seriously. And hopefully we'll see one day less greenwashing in the European Parliament when we have to tackle the climate crisis. So thanks, David, for this overview. And this is what has been happening during the last month, both on the streets and at the European level. But there is uh, another fight that needs our attention, and that has been keeping 28 million people across the continent struggling in poor working conditions. And I'm talking about the fight of uh, platform workers. Camille is a delivery man from Belgium who has been working for Uber Eats for the last five years. But he is also an activist at Maison de Livreur, an organization which fights for the rights taken away from people like him, bogus self-employees from the gig economy. He told us his story. Just a small disclaimer. I ran the interview in French, but decided to re-record my questions in English to bring you a smoother listening experience. Camille's voice has been dubbed. So this is me interviewing Camille. Camille, we brought you in to talk about uh, the daily struggle of platform workers. You are one of the 28 million people working through digital labor platform in the EU and a member of Maison de Livreur, an organization that seeks better working conditions. But before going deeper into the fight for workers' rights, let's hear your story. Could you tell us a bit about yourself? J'ai travaillé à l'usine pendant 10 ans en, en France. I worked in a factory for 10 years in France and following a restructuring, they fired all the temporary workers. I wondered, what will I do with my life? And as I happen to be Belgian, I was born here, I thought, I'm going to go back to Belgium, go back to school and do something interesting. 
except that when I arrived here, the unemployment office wasn't able to take care of me and I had to find a job very quickly to be able to pay the rent and fill the fridge. So I turned to Uber Eats because at that time, five years ago, they were recruiting a lot of delivery drivers and it must be said, it was quite easy to get in. So, you live in Belgium, where you started working for Uber Eats five years ago. Could you tell me a bit more about your daily life? What does it mean to work for a digital platform like Uber Eats? For instance, who decides your uh, tasks and so on? L'avantage de pouvoir travailler pour Uber, c'est de pouvoir se connecter quand on veut. Well, the advantage of working for Uber is that you can log in whenever you want. But having said that, you don't work when you want to. It's the platform that decides when it sends us orders. Usually, I'm at home at the beginning of my shift. I start getting dressed, I put on my coat, my parka. Then I unlock the app and get online. And I wait. Sometimes I wait for an hour and sometimes for five minutes. It really depends on what time it is, or on the weather, and so on. Once you receive the first order, you go to the restaurant. I take the order and validate the receipt on the application. Then I get the customer's address and I wait in front of the building for the customer who ordered it to come down. Sometimes it happens that the customer is right out front. Other times you have to wait up to 8 or 10 minutes and during that time you can't catch up with other orders and you don't get paid. I believe many across Europe could see themselves in your story. Whether for Uber, Deliveroo or another big company, you just need to download an app, get a bike and wait for the algorithm to give you a task. One could say it is easy to work for uh, large companies with uh, the most workers uh, worldwide. But uh, what is difficult is to be recognized as actually their employees. Camille, what does it mean in practical terms? Could you explain your status as a worker? So, I, like most of the delivery people here in Belgium, work with a special tax system called P2P. P2P stands for peer-to-peer. -peer. Basically, it was designed for jobs between private individuals. But we see that the platforms have jumped into this legal breach to be able to do false independent work. And so, we may be working throughout the year at the rate of... Well, last year it was 6,540 euros gross and 5,840 euros net. Basically, we are entitled to earn about 500 euros a month. And a lot of delivery drivers do this because they are precarious to be able to bring in a little bit of money. But like me, they're not entitled to unemployment, social rights, holidays or retirement. And we are a bit stuck when we have invested 2,500 euros in an electric bike. We don't want to do anything else. So it's obviously complicated. Do you think the situation has changed over time? Because for uh, what you said at the beginning, when you started, it was more convenient. Well, if I averaged the hourly rate, we were paid 15 to 17 euros per hour at the time. Now, if we make it our main job, we can drop to 5 to 6 euros per hour for the majority of delivery drivers. Because, obviously, when you work more and you increase the delivery schedule, you're paid less per hour, which makes you enter a vicious circle of, I'm paid less per hour, so I have to work more. 
In the end, some delivery drivers do nothing else and they easily end up working 70 hours a week. This is not acceptable in 2023. Et ça, c'est pas acceptable en 2023. I think one could think of platform work as a job that can give you some flexibility. It's modern, you could say. But then, from what you're telling me, the working conditions don't reflect modern standards. And uh, that's where Maison de Livreur comes in. How does your organization fight for uh, platform workers' social rights? Today it's quite difficult to mobilize the drivers because on the one hand they do this temporarily and on average they do this for four or five months before finding another job. But then there are other people who replace them and who have exactly the same working conditions. On the other hand, they are a bit scattered all over the city and don't necessarily have direct contact with each other. That was the whole spirit of Maison de Livreur. To give them a service, concrete solidarity, to have the opportunity to warm up, to drink a coffee, and especially to get help. That's very cool. I really think it's important that there is an organization for workers whose conditions are quite difficult. And I guess this is happening in other countries as well. So as far as you know, is there a fight at the international level or a European organization working to defend the rights of platform workers? We see it in all the countries where platforms are setting up. There are workers, collectives or trade unions that are very interested in what is happening there because what is happening is not okay. It's the complete disappearance of social rights. You said it earlier. It's a return to the 19th century somehow. Here in Brussels, during the Forum of Alternatives to Euroization, we had the opportunity to meet other collectives and unions that are facing exactly the same problems in their country. And it's already a pleasure to meet and say we are not alone. And then, on the other hand, it allows us to discuss solutions and alternatives to this system which pushes and almost forces the worker to the seven hours a week, which is not acceptable. Are you optimistic about the future of platform workers' fights? I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. I'm an activist. The future is made of our steps. Camille, this podcast is intended to look at the left side of EU politics so that voices like yours from the workers count. In the second part of this episode, we will talk with Leila Shaibi, an MEP from the left, whose work is focused on the directive on platform workers. So my last question to you is, what would need to happen at the decision-making level to make platform workers' condition better? So, we see it at the European level and at the national level here in Belgium that there are several laws or directives that are put in place. There's potentially some good, but the devil is in the details. Here in Belgium, there is a law that has tried to imitate the European directive without setting up an a priori procedure. So, it is the delivery drivers who have to go to court and use this presumption of salaried status. This typically means that they will have to wait for the courts to rule in the first instance on appeal and potentially in the third instance. And so, for a delivery man who has had his account blocked, he will have to wait seven, eight, nine years before his case is settled. And the case will only be settled for him. So, for all the other delivery drivers, there will be no improvement in their working conditions thanks to the Belgian law. That's why it's important that this directive takes into account an a priori mechanism. That is what we want at the European level. 
And we can see I'm not representative of the delivery people as a whole. It's a podcast, so people can't see me, but the majority of delivery people are non-white. So it says a lot about our economic system, which is racist. Let's be very clear about that. And so we push people who are not white into unacceptable working conditions. And this is ignored precisely because the delivery people don't look like the usual ministers. That's not okay either. The directive must also, how to say, in the future, I would like to see it done in collaboration with the delivery men themselves. This was Camille's powerful story. It leaves us with uh, some lessons on the need to protect workers, but also a lead on how to do it. What's your take on it, David? I think uh, they're really showing the way these uh, organizations, the unions working in, in this area and those organizations of activists like uh, Camille, really showing the way of how to fight for workers' rights in the 21st uh, century. They've taken on big tech of course like it's an extremely difficult job you're up against some of the most powerful billionaires in the world but they're scoring some successes and they're forcing things through in the european parliament and they're showing everyone else how we do this kind of work in this century and how it can be effective yes i'm uh, particularly impressed by the way platform workers are uh, leading their fight Because I think we live also in a society where uh, everyone is uh, more concerned about their uh, individual situation and uh, less about uh, collective uh, action. So um, the way platform work is usually presented is uh, kind of even empowering because it gives you flexibility. You can do other things on the sure. side, but then it's actually not true. Like as Camille said, there are so many people that end up having it as a full-time job, which is paid as a part-time one. So I really hope that uh, fight continues and that... Uh, They finally get recognized as employees and uh, get uh, the working condition everyone should have. But David, in light of uh, Camille's interview, regulating platform work is not only about the uh, dignity of workers across Europe, but also about uh, ending poverty and racism. What does this uh, say about the gig economy? Yeah, I think this is basically about dignity. I mean, by most measures, workers in Europe have not had a pay rise since the 1970s. And this is exacerbating that problem. While, you know, profits have never been higher, we're creating more billionaires. You know, a billionaire every 30 hours is created. So the levels of inequality are obscene. And we see this very starkly on our city streets with the platform workers issue. So it's about dignity and they've got a right on their side. So hopefully with the right to political support, they can get some decent laws to protect themselves. Totally. And I think also the fight and activism of platform workers shows us that uh, this system is always blaming workers when there are uh, platforms uh, exploiting legal loopholes and making all this exploitation possible. So uh, let's see what happens. So David, we could feel Camille's frustration related to how slow national courts are helping uh, platform workers. How is the European Parliament working on this issue? Well, that was the gist of my conversation with uh, MEP Leila Shaibi. I had a chat with her to put the European legislation on platform workers under the left lens, but more importantly, to uh, share Camille's uh, concerns with her. Right. Leila is a member of the left group in the European Parliament and vice chair of the Committee on Employment and Social Affairs. Yeah, on a, on a personal level and, and a political level, Leila has been working really hard on this uh, platform workers directive, the proposal for a directive over the last uh, few years. 
years, since the beginning of her mandate, essentially. So she's really the right person to talk about stories such as Camille's. Okay, that's great. And um, where should we start? Also, I think uh, not many people know about this directive at all. So the proposals are about granting legal protection to those uh, working for digital apps like Uber, Deliveroo. But we should probably start by asking, you know, why has labour law failed in the last few years with the rise of the gig economy, meaning workers such as Camille don't have access to social protection? That was the kickoff of my interview uh, with Leila. With the Uberization, the gig economy, the employer have found the possibility to have at the same time the advantage of the employment status and the advantage of the self-employment status. And these workers, they are actually bogus self-employed. They have the disadvantage of the employment status. They have to obey. They have to do whatever, all what the boss is, is saying or the platform is saying. But uh, they don't have the freedom of the self-employed. They are not only connecting self-employed with customer, they are subordinating. They are acting like a boss. They are choosing the price with an algorithm. The algorithm is a kind of new kind of boss, 21st century boss. They supervise you, they control you, they can sanction you. And these are usually the three elements of the subordination relationship, employment relationship. So if you want to have someone in your subordination, you need to respect the obligation of an employer. You need to respect the labor law. So what you're telling me is that online platforms found a way to operate across countries with false employed workers, choosing prices for them and leaving the workers with no room to ask their rights. Yeah, quite unfair. It's uh, been going on for years and some courts have ruled in favour of the workers across Europe. In December 2021, the European Commission submitted a proposal on this issue, but since then we've had an intense debate going on in the European Parliament, and it seems the Parliament has finally come to an agreement on its position. Wow, but why do you think it takes so long uh, to reach a common position between the groups? Well, you won't be shocked by uh, the next one, uh, corporate lobbying. Since the beginning in this story, the platforms, I said, OK, well done, it's a good idea to make a legislative proposal about platform work because we are very uh, annoyed because everywhere in Europe where you have workers, they go to the judge. So they thought, OK, with this directive, we are going to find a way to legalize what judge said it's illegal. It was a little bit the idea of uh, Uber. And so you have in one hand, you had uh, the lobby and member states that said, OK, it's a good opportunity, this directive, to legalize the fact that when you are an employer, when you are a boss, a company, it's totally legal to have uh, people in your subordination without applying the labor law, uh, without the social protection. Well, the talks were tough among the political groups. According to Leila, the parliament was split into two main camps, pro-lobby and pro-workers. The group from the right side, and especially, and also the group from uh, Renew, they did whatever they can do in order to satisfy the platform and the lobby. And on the other hand, you had uh, the workers, you had the progressive group uh, in the parliament, uh, like uh, the group from uh, the left. We say, OK, no, now we have an opportunity with the directive not to legalize what is actually illegal, but to enforce them, to oblige the platform to respect the law with the presumption of employment relationship. The presumption of employment relationship. That's kind of uh, the same thing Camille was asking from the European institutions. Has the left group been able to push for it in the parliament? Yeah, the left, together with activists and workers like Camille, 
forced a major step forward in February when the Parliament voted on the directive, on its position on the directive. So when the text approved, there is a presumption of the employment uh, relationship. So what the Parliament said, we keep the principle of employment relationship, but no criteria anymore. There is no criteria to implement the presumption of employment relationship, which doesn't mean that every platform worker is uh, an employee. You are a platform, you say, hey, okay, there is a presumption of employment relationship, but I am only connecting genuine self-employed with customer. Okay, bring the evidence. Article 5 say you can contest, you can bring the evidence, but it's not evidence of subordination. It's evidence of self-employment. Bring the evidence to change the opposite of the situation now. Well, it sounds like a great achievement, but you said before it was uh, accomplished together with uh, the workers. How so? You're right. As we heard from Camille, the delivery workers wanted the directive to be as collaborative as possible and to be included in the process. So I asked Leila about the role they had. We were able to build a kind of alternative lobby. The biggest part of our job was, in a way, to break the walls between the parliament and the society, the workers, and make that all the platform workers that organize themselves in Spain, Portugal, France, Belgium, Germany, in all the Europe, to make that they had a common voice here in the heart of the European Union institution. So this achievement has been possible thanks to worker pressure. David, I believe this workers' lobby is an alternative, speaking to the importance of putting citizens' voices at the center of policymaking. But uh, is this a happy ending? It's a victory so far, but it's not the end. Uh, Now the parliament has a position, but council, which represents the member states, has to find its own position. And there are some countries that have aligned with big tech and with the platforms. And why do you think this is happening? So this is, you know, the major workers' rights battle of our time. It's happening because I think there's a threat to the major tech platforms who are extremely powerful, who have a lot of influence over certain governments. And the right basically likes this model. The right likes this employment model and wants probably to see it spread to other sectors and not just platform work. Yeah, it seems like it's pretty convenient for them to not only keep on what we already have, but to expand it to other uh, working sectors. Sounds like a bit of a dystopia to me, to be honest. Uh, I think that's the threat. I think, and I think the threat is real. And uh, would you say there is actually room for being optimistic about the Platform Workers Directive? Yeah, cautiously, I'd say. The uh, council will uh, find a position in the summer after the Swedish presidency. And after that, it'll be Spain's turn to uh, take the helm of the council presidency. So talks with the parliament will be under the lead of a member state that today is quite aligned with the workers' movements. Thanks, David. We will follow how things develop and if the Platform Workers Directive becomes a reality before the end of this legislature. And this was it for the first episode of Look Left, a podcast by the left in the European Parliament. Let us know what you think about this first episode. Feel free to reach out to us. We are always happy to receive your comments and questions. Special thanks to Bulle Media, who helped us to put this together. Sound design and mixing are by Jeremy Bouquet. And a big thank to our editor, Maria Dios. Until the next episode, look left. <laughs>